chapters one and two of book eight of history of animals by aristotle translated by darcy wentworth thompson this librivox recording is in the public domain one we have now discussed the physical characteristics of animals and their methods of generation their habits and their modes of living vary according to their character and their food in the great majority of animals there are traces of psychical qualities or attitudes which qualities are more markedly differentiated in the case of human beings for just as we pointed out resemblances in the physical organs so in a number of animals we observe gentleness or fierceness mildness or cross temper courage or timidity fear or confidence high spirit or low cunning and with regard to intelligence something equivalent to sagacity some of these qualities in man as compared with the corresponding qualities in animals differ only quantitatively that is to say a man has more or less of this quality and an animal has more or less of some other other qualities in man are represented by analogous and not identical qualities for instance, just as in man we find knowledge, wisdom, and sagacity, so in certain animals there exists some other natural potentiality akin to these. The truth of this statement will be the more clearly apprehended if we have regard to the phenomena of childhood, for in children may be observed the traces and scenes of what will one day be settled psychological habits though psychologically a child hardly differs for the time being from an animal so that one is quite justified in saying that as regards man and animals certain psychical qualities are identical with one another whilst others resemble and others are analogous to each other nature proceeds little by little from things lifeless to animal life in such a way that it is impossible to determine the exact line of demarcation nor on which side thereof an intermediate form should lie thus next after lifeless things in the upward scale comes the plant and of plants one will differ from another as to its amount of apparent vitality and in a word the whole genus of plants whilst it is devoid of life as compared with an animal is endowed with life as compared with other corporeal entities indeed as we just remarked there is observed in plants a continuous scale of ascent towards the animal so in the sea there are certain objects concerning which one would be at a loss to determine whether they be animal or vegetable for instance certain of these objects are fairly rooted and in several cases perish if detached thus the pinna is rooted to a particular spot and the solen or razor shell cannot survive withdrawal from its burrow indeed broadly speaking the entire genus of testations have a resemblance to vegetables if they be contrasted with such animals as are capable of progression in regard to sensibility some animals give no indication whatsoever of it whilst others indicate it but indistinctly further the substance of some of these intermediate creatures is flesh-like as is the case with the so-called tethia or ascidians and the acalephi or sea anemones but the sponge is in every respect like a vegetable 
and so throughout the entire animal scale there is a graduated differentiation in amount of vitality and in capacity for motion. A similar statement holds good with regard to habits of life. Thus of plants that spring from seed the one function seems to be the reproduction of their own particular species, and the sphere of action with certain animals is similarly limited. The faculty of reproduction then is common to all alike. If sensibility be superadded, then their lives will differ from one another in respect to sexual intercourse through the varying amount of pleasure derived therefrom, and also in regard to modes of parturition and ways of rearing their young. Some animals, like plants, simply procreate their own species at definite seasons. Other animals busy themselves also in procuring food for their young, and after they are reared quit them and have no further dealings with them. Other animals are more intelligent and endowed with memory, and they live with their offspring for a longer period and on a more social footing. The life of animals, then, may be divided into two acts, procreation and feeding, for on these two acts all their interests and life concentrate. Their food depends chiefly on the substance of which they are severally constituted, for the source of their growth in all cases will be this substance, and whatsoever is in conformity with nature is pleasant, and all animals pursue pleasure in keeping with their nature. 2. Animals are also differentiated locally. That is to say, some live upon dry land, while others live in the water, and this differentiation may be interpreted in two different ways. Thus, some animals are termed terrestrial, as inhaling air, and others aquatic, as taking in water, and there are others which do not actually take in these elements, but nevertheless are constitutionally adapted to the cooling influence, so far as is needful to them, of one element or the other, and hence are called terrestrial or aquatic, though they neither breathe air nor take in water. Again, other animals are so called from their finding their food and fixing their habitat on land or in water. For many animals, although they inhale air and breed on land, yet derive their food from the water, and live in water for the greater part of their lives. And these are the only animals to which, as living in and on two elements, the term amphibious is applicable. There is no animal taking in water that is terrestrial, or aerial, or that derives its food from the land, whereas of the great number of land animals, inhaling air, many get their food from the water. Moreover, some are so peculiarly organized that if they be shut off altogether from the water, they cannot possibly live, as, for instance, the so-called sea turtle, the crocodile, the hippopotamus, the seal, and some of the smaller creatures, such as the freshwater tortoise and the frog. Now, all these animals choke or drown if they do not from time to time breathe atmospheric air. They breed and rear their young on dry land, or near the land, but they pass their lives in water. But the dolphin is equipped in the most remarkable way of all animals. The dolphin and other similar aquatic animals, including the other cetaceans which resemble it, that is to say, the whale, and all the other creatures that are furnished with a blowhole. 
one can hardly allow that such an animal is terrestrial and terrestrial only, or aquatic and aquatic only, if by terrestrial we mean an animal that inhales air, and if by aquatic we mean an animal that takes in water. For the fact is, the dolphin performs both these processes. He takes in water and discharges it by his blowhole, and he also inhales air into his lungs. For, by the way, the creature is furnished with this organ, and respires thereby, and accordingly, when caught in the nets, he is quickly suffocated for lack of air. He can also live for a considerable while out of the water, but all this while he keeps up a dull moaning sound, corresponding to the noise made by air-breathing animals in general. Furthermore, when sleeping, the animal keeps his nose above water, and he does so that he may breathe the air. Now it would be unreasonable to assign one and the same class of animals to both categories, terrestrial and aquatic, seeing that these categories are more or less exclusive of one another. We must accordingly supplement our definition of the term aquatic or marine. For the fact is, some aquatic animals take in water and discharge it again, for the same reason that leads air-breathing animals to inhale air, in other words, with the object of cooling the blood. Others take in water as incidental to their mode of feeding, for as they get their food in the water they cannot but take in water along with their food, and if they take in water they must be provided with some organ for discharging it. Those blooded animals, then, that use water for a purpose analogous to respiration are provided with gills, and such as take in water when catching their prey with the blowhole. Similar remarks are applicable to mollusks and crustaceans, for again it is by way of procuring food that these creatures take in water. Aquatic in different ways, the differences depending on bodily relation to external temperature and on habit of life, are such animals on the one hand as take in air but live in water, and such on the other hand as take in water and are furnished with gills but go upon dry land and get their living there. At present only one animal of the latter kind is known, the so-called cordylus or water newt. This creature is furnished not with lungs, but with gills, but for all that it is a quadruped and fitted for walking on dry land. In the case of all these animals their nature appears in some kind of way to have got warped, just as some male animals get to resemble the female, and some female animals the male. The fact is that animals, if they be subjected to a modification in minute organs, are liable to immense modifications in their general configuration. This phenomenon may be observed in the case of gelded animals. Only a minute organ of the animal is mutilated, and the creature passes from the male to the female form. We may infer, then, that if in the primary conformation of the embryo an infinitesimally minute but absolutely essential organ sustain a change of magnitude one way or the other, the animal will in one case turn to male, and in the other to female, and also that if the said organ be obliterated altogether, the animal will be of neither one sex nor the other. 
and so by the occurrence of modification in minute organs it comes to pass that one animal is terrestrial and another aquatic in both senses of these terms and again some animals are amphibious whilst other animals are not amphibious owing to the circumstance that in their conformation while in the embryonic condition there got intermixed into them some portion of the matter of which their subsequent food is constituted for as was said above what is in conformity with nature is to every single animal pleasant and agreeable animals then have been categorized into terrestrial and aquatic in three ways according to their assumption of air or of water the temperament of their bodies or the character of their food and the mode of life of an animal corresponds to the category in which it is found that is to say in some cases the animal depends for its terrestrial or aquatic nature on temperament and diet combined as well as upon its method of respiration and sometimes on temperament and habits alone of testations some that are incapable of motion subsist on fresh water for as the sea-water dissolves into its constituents the fresh water from its greater thinness percolates through the grosser parts in fact they live on fresh water just as they were originally engendered from the same now that fresh water is contained in the sea and can be strained off from it can be proved in a thoroughly practical way take a thin vessel of moulded wax attach a cord to it and let it down quite empty into the sea in twenty-four hours it will be found to contain a quantity of water and the water will be fresh and drinkable sea anemones feed on such small fishes as come in their way the mouth of this creature is in the middle of its body and this fact may be clearly observed in the case of the larger varieties like the oyster it has a duct for the outlet of the residuum and this duct is at the top of the animal in other words the sea anemone corresponds to the inner fleshy part of the oyster and the stone to which the one creature clings corresponds to the shell which encases the other the limpet detaches itself from the rock and goes about in quest of food of shellfish that are mobile some are carnivorous and live on little fishes as for instance the purple murex and there can be no doubt that the purple murex is carnivorous as it is caught by a bait of fish others are carnivorous but feed also on marine vegetation the sea turtles feed on shellfish for by the way their mouths are extraordinarily hard whatever object it seizes stone or other it crunches into bits but when it leaves the water for dry land it browses on grass these creatures suffer greatly and oftentimes die when they lie on the surface of the water exposed to a scorching sun for when once they have risen to the surface they find a difficulty in sinking again crustaceans feed in like manner they are omnivorous that is to say they live on stones slime seaweed and excrement as for instance the rock crab and are also carnivorous the crawfish or spiny lobster can get the better of fishes even of the larger species 
though in some of them it occasionally finds more than its match. Thus this animal is so overmastered and cowed by the octopus that it dies of terror if it become aware of an octopus in the same net with itself. The crawfish can master the conger eel, for owing to the rough spines of the crawfish the eel cannot slip away and elude its hold. The conger eel, however, devours the octopus, for owing to the slipperiness of its antagonist the octopus can make nothing of it. The crawfish feeds on little fish, capturing them beside its hole or dwelling place, for, by the way, it is found out at sea on rough and stony bottoms, and in such places it makes its den. Whatever it catches it puts into its mouth with its pincer-like claws, like the common crab. Its nature is to walk straight forward when it has nothing to fear, with its feelers hanging sideways. If it be frightened, it makes its escape backwards, darting off to a great distance. These animals fight one another with their claws, just as rams fight with their horns, raising them and striking their opponents. They are often also seen crowded together in herds. So much for the mode of life of the crustacean. Mollusks are all carnivorous, and of mollusks the calamari and the sepia are more than a match for fishes even of the large species. The octopus, for the most part, gathers shellfish, extracts the flesh, and feeds on that. In fact, fishermen recognize their holes by the number of shells lying about. Some say that the octopus devours its own species, but this statement is incorrect. It is doubtless founded on the fact that the creature is often found with its tentacles removed, which tentacles have really been eaten off by the conger. Fishes, all without exception, feed on spawn in the spawning season, but in other respects the food varies with the varying species. Some fishes are exclusively carnivorous, as the cartilaginous genus, the conger, the canna or seranus, the tunny, the bass, the cynodon or dentex, the amia, the sea perch, and the marina. The red mullet is carnivorous, but feeds also on seaweed, on shellfish and on mud. The grey mullet feeds on mud, the dascalus on mud and offal, the scarus or parrotfish, and the Melanurus on seaweed, the salp on offal and seaweed. The salp feeds also on zostera, and is the only fish that is captured with a gourd. All fishes devour their own species, with the single exception of the kestrius or mullet, and the conger is especially ravenous in this respect. The cephalus and the mullet in general are the only fish that eat no flesh. This may be inferred from the facts that when caught they are never found with flesh in their intestines, and that the bait used to catch them is not flesh but barley cake. Every fish of the mullet kind lives on seaweed and sand. The cephalus, called by some the kelon, keeps near in to the shore. The Piraeus keeps out at a distance from it, 
and feeds on a mucous substance exuding from itself, and consequently is always in a starved condition. The cephalus lives in mud, and is in consequence heavy and slimy. It never feeds on any other fish. As it lives in mud, it has, every now and then, to make a leap upwards out of the mud, so as to wash the slime from off its body. There is no creature known to prey upon the spawn of the cephalus, so that this species is exceedingly numerous. When, however, the fish is full grown, it is preyed upon by a number of fishes, and especially by the acarnus or bass. Of all fishes, the mullet is the most voracious and insatiable, and in consequence its belly is kept at full stretch. Whenever it is not starving, it may be considered as out of condition. When it is frightened, it hides its head in mud, under the notion that it is hiding its whole body. The synodon is carnivorous and feeds on mollusks. Very often the synodon and the canna cast up their stomachs, while chasing smaller fishes. For, be it remembered, fishes have their stomachs close to the mouth, and are not furnished with a gullet. Some fishes, then, as has been stated, are carnivorous and carnivorous only, as the dolphin, the cynodon, the gilthead, the salakians, and the mollusks. Other fishes feed habitually on mud or seaweed or sea moss, or the so-called stockweed or growing plants, as, for instance, the ficus, the goby, and the rockfish. And, by the way, the only meat that the ficus will touch is that of prawns. Very often, however, as has been stated, they devour one another, and especially do the larger ones devour the smaller. The proof of their being carnivorous is the fact that they can be caught with flesh for a bait. The mackerel, the tunny, and the bass are for the most part carnivorous, but they do occasionally feed on seaweed. The sarg, feeds on the leavings of the trigle or red mullet. The red mullet burrows in the mud, and when it sets the mud in motion and quits its haunt, the sarg settles down into the place and feeds on what is left behind, and prevents any smaller fish from settling in the immediate vicinity. Of all fishes, the so-called Scarus, or parrot wrasse, is the only one known to chew the cud like a quadruped. As a general rule, the larger fishes catch the smaller ones in their mouths, whilst swimming straight after them in the ordinary position. But the Slakians, the dolphin, and all the cetacea must first turn over on their backs, as their mouths are placed down below. This allows a fair chance of escape to the smaller fishes and, indeed, if it were not so, there would be very few of the little fishes left, for the speed and veracity of the dolphin is something marvellous. Of eels, a few here and there, feed on mud and on chance morsels of food thrown to them. The greater part of them subsist on fresh water. Eel breeders are particularly careful to have the water kept perfectly clear, by its perpetually flowing on to flat slabs of stone, and then flowing off again. Sometimes they coat the eel tanks with plaster. The fact is that the eel 
will soon choke if the water is not clear, as his gills are peculiarly small. On this account, when fishing for eels, they disturb the water. In the river Strymon, eel fishing takes place at the rising of the Pleiades, because at this period the water is troubled, and the mud raised up by contrary winds. Unless the water be in this condition, it is as well to leave the eels alone. When dead, the eel, unlike the majority of fishes, neither floats on nor rises to the surface, and this is owing to the smallness of the stomach. A few eels are supplied with fat, but the greater part have no fat whatsoever. When removed from the water, they can live for five or six days. For a longer period, if north winds prevail, for a shorter if south winds. If they are removed in summer from the pools to the tanks, they will die, but not so if removed in the winter. They are not capable of holding out against any abrupt change. Consequently, they often die in large numbers when men engaged in transporting them from one place to another dip them into water particularly cold. They will also die of suffocation if they be kept in a scanty supply of water. This same remark will hold good for fishes in general, for they are suffocated if they be long confined in a short supply of water, with the water kept unchanged, just as animals that respire are suffocated if they be shut up with a scanty supply of air. The eel in some cases lives for seven or eight years. The river eel feeds on his own species, on grass or on roots, or on any chance food found in the mud. Their usual feeding time is at night, and during the daytime they retreat into deep water. And so much for the food of fishes. End of chapter 2